so that it's literally feeding with its fruit all of the beasts of the field. But a problem arises. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a watcher or an angel comes down and commands that the tree be lopped off at the bottom, leaving just the stump. And around the stump is this brass enclosure giving us the picture that it's to be protected. And then somehow this man or this person that was watching the tree becomes like almost a beast. The the scripture gives indication to. And then soon later we get this picture of possible restoration. Where we left last week was the dream. Kind of a cliffhanger, you know. Like come back next week and we'll interpret it. And so that's tonight where we're at. The interpretation of this crazy dream Nebuchadnezzar. Now, a little bit of a precursor. We've been studying King Nebi for several weeks. Tonight is our last night with Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled from 605 to 562 BC. And tonight is the last encounter with Nebuchadnezzar. So let's begin in verse 19 of Daniel chapter 4. Whenever you uh, say, I'm there. Here we go. Let's do this. Verse 19. Then Daniel whose name given to him by Nebuchadnezzar, his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. Now, hold on. You remember, he has this dream. Then Nebuchadnezzar calls in like he did the first time all of the wise men. Problem is, the wise men can't interpret it like the first time, the Chaldeans. So then in walks Daniel. Daniel not only interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, he also told him what it was before he even recited it. Beautiful power picture of God. And so Belteshazzar here, Daniel, gets the picture of his dream. And the scripture says at the beginning of verse 19, he was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Look at this. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. What what, what do you see here? This is crazy. What do you see? Daniel is what? He's like wrestling on the inside with whether or not he should share this interpretation. Because he's finding himself having compassion on Nebuchadnezzar. Which causes us to ask why? Why would Daniel ever have compassion or grace or mercy on Nebuchadnezzar? Let me tell you, he is so connected to the heart and character of God that in this moment, as Nebuchadnezzar's faith is about ready to be revealed, Daniel is bleeding mercy out of his heart. He somehow become a relational companion with the king of the modern world who, in 605, kidnapped him. In 596 went back to Jerusalem and exiled more Jews and killed more men, women, and children. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar ordered the destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel is a Jew. This is like loving your enemy. What's interesting is Jesus, maybe you've heard of him, comes later. And a part of the message of Jesus, so countercultural, is that we are to love our enemies. And somehow here... Pre-Jesus, Daniel is loving, compassionate towards this man who kidnapped him, exiled his home people, and ultimately destroyed the whole city. So interconnected to God. Um, Where do you find yourself in this mix? 
if you got some condemning news about an enemy that God had told you to share with them, would you be excited to share that news or somewhat compassionate, right? Picture right now your worst enemy and God told you, hey, here comes their fate. They're going to X, Y, Z, and you get the phenomenal chance to share that fateful, harmful message with them, right? Would you be reluctant or would you be like, oh, and by the way, let me tell you about your impending doom, right? Like we would be chomping at the bit at this. But Daniel's not. He's wrestling because he sees the interpretation of the dream. And, and it is not good. Here we go, verse 20. The tree you saw, which, became, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shame, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lied. Verse 22, it is you. You, you're the tree. Nebuchadnezzar, you're that tree. O king, who have grown to become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominions to the ends of the earth. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a a, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field. Seven periods of time pass over him. He says, this is you. And so here he gives the interpretation in verse 24. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The whole reason why you had this dream and the whole reason why I'm interpreting this dream is so you know the King of the the Most High God rules kingdoms and he will make low what he wants to make low and he will exalt what he wants to to exalt that's why you're having this dream Nebuchadnezzar it's you you're the tree and you're going to become like a beast Daniel says verse 26 and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that from the time that you know that that heaven rules therefore O king let my counsel be acceptable to you look what he says Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What does Daniel say? What does he say? He says, repent. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, look, there is still time. This hasn't happened yet. Repent. Turn from your ways. Turn from your oppression. Have grace. Have mercy embrace righteousness, worship God. He says, repent. It's the same message of John the Baptist, of Jesus, of Paul, of Timothy, of Peter. Repent and be saved. Turn from the world, turn towards God. It's the message of the scriptures and Nebuchadnezzar hears it straight from the mouth of Daniel. Each of us have moments like that where the message is so clear. Turn from yourself, your pride, your envy, your jealousy, all that makes you you in your sin. Turn from that and repent. Come to Christ. 
receive his grace and mercy. And all of us in that moment, we come to this place in our hearts as God opens where we have that opportunity to respond to God's initiation. So what does O King Nebuchadnezzar do? Verse 28. If the dream was uh, a little bit confusing to you in its interpretation, it'll become very clear now. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So, okay. He comes out to his rooftop, and I'm going to help you see this here in a second. And and he gets to the end of it, and he overlooks the city of Babylon. 1.2 million people lived there at this time. It's a city um, that was 15, listen, 15 square miles. He's built it, and he steps out, and he says... Look at what I have made. Look at what I have built. Look at what I have constructed. The problem is not that he says Babylon was a great city because it was. I'll bring up the map of Babylon just so we can see this. I didn't make this with a crayon, I promise. But um, look at this. This kind of gives us the picture here of, now, in Babylon, there was this outer wall of protection. It was huge. Not just was there an outer wall, but there was, there was an inner wall as well. And between those two walls was a, was a, a water, um, what do they call it, a moat? Is that what they call it? There was a moat that went in between. So that if anyone was going to get to step in on Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they were going to have to go over a wall, a moat, and a wall. By the way, on the outer wall, four chariots wide could ride on the outer wall. Mui protection. I'm working on my Spanish for Ecuador, right? Like, there was a lot of protection around this. Now, you'll notice it's kind of cut off at the bottom. In between the city of Babylon was the river, anyone? Euphrates. Went right through the city, right through the middle. You see it right there by the Temple of Marduk, which is the god of the Babylonians. The Euphrates River goes, this is a beautiful city. Not just that, did you know that Nebuchadnezzar, in his Brilliant architect mind to himself, constructed one of the seven wonders of the world. Let's see the hanging gardens. This is, I drew this earlier um, with colored pencils. Um, now, story has it, uh, this became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's called the hanging garden. Story has it that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife came to him and said, Honey, it's hot here. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, Indeed it is. And, uh, and so his, his, uh, his, answer, as all husbands should take note of, is he saw the needs of his wife and he constructed a massive tower of hanging air conditioning, right? L- literally, this, this was one of the very first air conditioners. Like on top of the hanging gardens stood some of the tallest trees in all of Babylon. And so this thing, like all of its vegetation, uh, the story goes that his wife would venture up and just enjoy the calm of the day in the middle of modern day Iraq. It's hot, right? But he built this for her. The problem, listen, the problem isn't that, ne- uh, that Nebuchadnezzar walks out and say Babylon is great. Because, I mean, it is pretty cool. This is pretty revolutionary stuff. Uh, the problem is that he takes credit for it. The problem isn't that he says Babylon is great. The problem is that he takes credit for it. Uh, You see, one of the huge sins of Nebuchadnezzar and one of the huge pieces of pride is pride rises to the top, especially when we begin to compare. 
whenever you put yourself up against someone else or something else, and we begin to compare, it's when pride surfaces the quickest. Nebuchadnezzar has decided to go toe-to-toe with who? With God. Do you remember? He has his first dream. And God in the dream says, you're the head of gold in the statue. And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar says? Yeah, that's good and all. Uh, but actually, I'm going to make a whole statue of gold. To say, that, to say, actually, my kingdom is not just a head of gold. It's a whole statue worth of gold. This whole time, Nebuchadnezzar is comparing his kingdom, his majesty, his goodness, his ability to serve and build with God. And therein lies his, his, therein lies his pride. Um, the problem isn't that you think your children are the smartest, tallest, and best colorers, right? If you're a parent in here, I see some of the quickest pride about our kids, right? Dude, like my kid hit three home runs in the Little League game the other day. Really? That's, that's awesome. The fence was like 30 feet from the plate, you know what I mean? Like, way to go. Or, you know, it's like, no, 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 you don't even understand. My kid is only three months old, and he's already reading the scripture, you know? Like, like parents just do, they just do silly things, The problem is not, the problem is not that their kids may be the tallest or the best athletes or whatever. That might be the reality. The problem is in their comparison is they look to others and they begin to think that they are the best parents that there is. Um, The problem, my friends, is not that some of you think that you're uh, the best student with the best gifts in your context. It's not that because that that might be the reality. You might get the best grades. You might be the most studious in your class. You might even have the best relationship with the teacher. That's not the problem. That might be reality. The problem is when you sit back and you think that that reflects on your self-worth. Christians, listen. The problem is not that you have a closer relationship to Christ than others. That may very well be the reality. The problem is that that creates in your comparison a self-righteous attitude that when you get around other believers, you are instantly stacking yourself up against them. And whether you ever communicate it or it just comes out of your heart, you really believe that you are more righteous and that somehow you're the judge of that. The problem isn't these things that are just simply realities. You may have a closer relationship with Christ. Your kid might be the tallest. You may be the most gifted, the best guitar player. Whatever it is, that might be reality. But the moment that you begin in your comparison of people to take credit for those things is the moment in our comparison when pride rises to the surface and the question that Nebuchadnezzar has had to ask over and over and over, what do I do with God's sovereignty? Either I accept it and I'm humbled by it or I rebel against it. And that's the base premise of pride. My kid's the tallest. God's grace. It's either God's grace Or I rebel against that and, oh no, you're right, I have the best genes of all mankind. Look at me, I'm, you know, Fabio up here, right? Your gifts, God's grace in God's sovereignty and his plan. Or it's, you know, you're right, I worked really hard. I mean, I I practically came out of the womb with a guitar. I mean, I can play licks that, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Kenny Hendrix, what's his name? 
Jim, Jimi Hendrix can't even play, right? Like, I can do all those things. And, and in that moment, you decide and you reveal what you believe about God's sovereignty. That's what Nebuchadnezzar keeps answering. In his pride, he's like, I will not receive the fact that God is good, sovereign, and his plan is being accomplished. I'm going to rebel completely against that. And so, it's me. Look, Babylon is great. I have built it. I have designed it. I have created it. The problem isn't, my friends, that you may be the most gifted, the most talented, the most whatever in comparison with someone else because we all have those things in this room. You could find some category about yourself that would be better about someone else in here. Your shirt is the cool, whatever it is, stupid things and, 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 and extreme things, whatever it is. That's not the problem. The problem is when you sit back and in your picture of God's plan and sovereignty, you take credit for it. And at that moment, you begin to compare yourself with God. And that is pride. You see. Now, we're going to watch what happens when Nebuchadnezzar does this. This gets really interesting really fast. Verse 30. And the king said and answered, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, he asks himself. It's like a rhetorical, awesome statement that he makes kind of in the mirror or something. Verse 31, look at this. While the words were still in, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat, uh, to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled. Do you guys understand what this means? Nebuchadnezzar, in the literal Aramaic, becomes like a werewolf. This is crazy. In the moment of his pride, in the moment when he looks out and says, oh yes, look at, my, look at my kingdom of Babylon. This is not a fairy tale. God makes him to be like the beast of the field. Now, I want to show you a, a picture. William Blake interprets what this could have looked like, and I want you to work with me here, okay? This is, all right, this is a widely accepted portrayal of Nebuchadnezzar's possibility. Long fingernails, his eyes, are very, very strange, right? He has the biggest triceps ever. Um, you can take that down now. But, um, but, but this is real stuff. For seven, listen, for seven years, the king of the modern world becomes like a beast of the field. And the scripture says, until he learns and until he sees that the most high is the most high. Can we just pause for a moment and just take a second and enjoy the sovereignty of God? Powerful enough to do anything that he desires to reveal his true majesty. And that truth stands true today. Now, a little bit of history. For those seven years, Babylon, you would expect utter chaos. Like Nebuchadnezzar's out, you know, somewhere looking like that. And we, we could imagine like he, become, he soon becomes a circus act, you know. Like people are trying to say, hey, come check out King Nebi. You know, he looks like a dog now, right? And they're like selling tickets and utter chaos in Babylon would ensue. Who's our leader? Who's our ruler? His son, Belmarduk, takes over for those seven years. But for seven years historically, we see no chaos. 
which is really interesting because the moment that Nebuchadnezzar is done ruling, literal, all over the place in Babylon. We have rulers passing in and out, and Babylon eventually falls. But for these seven years, like the dream said, there will be a hedge of brass around the stump. In other words, there will be hope. And so somehow, mysteriously, only by God's grace, Nebuchadnezzar is left in this place of hope, and the kingdom of Babylon survives. And his son somehow doesn't become power hungry and kill his dad off when he looks like that. It remains. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. I hate long fingernails. Anybody else? You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're talking, this is just, this is absolute beast-like. Have you ever felt, have you ever felt like a beast in your sin before? Have you ever felt so trapped by your sin that you literally like felt like an animal? You didn't have your senses. You just became like survival of the sinful. We get this very integral picture here of a man who claims credit and instantaneously becomes a beast. But giving us the picture that that's ultimately what sin does to you and I. Is it like takes away this opportunity to follow God and creates in us lusts and passions and destruction that sometimes we can't even explain. Do you feel me? Have you ever been such on the hamster wheel of sin that it just feels out of control? Like you, you can't even control. Have you ever felt that way before? Nebuchadnezzar is completely crippled here. But look what happens. Verse 34. He takes back over the first person dialogue. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. He somehow, and I can't explain this, in his beast-like nature, looks his eyes up to heaven. And my reason returns to him, he says, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. All of a sudden, seven years of being like a beast, and now he's humbled, and now the scripture says he's praising God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, look at this, according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. This man goes from challenging the very sovereignty of God to saying he does as he wills. I can't rebel against God's plan. I must be humbled underneath it instead. Now I want to explain something here after we look at this last part. And none can stay from his hand or say to him, what have you done? None can speak against God because only God resounds. Big question at this point. We've been asking it all of Daniel. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Unfortunately, we don't have the thief on the cross. We don't have the voice coming down from heaven saying, and today you'll be with me in paradise. We don't have that. 
We don't have what Jesus tells Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house. We don't have that. And so I'm not going to begin to make a judgment on the heart of Nebuchadnezzar and say, for sure, Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith in God and, and he is in heaven in eternal glory. I can't make that statement, nor should you. But something certainly happens in him here, doesn't it? Some kind of breaking and humility, and look at where this ends in verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. He gets it all back. He sees that God is the most high and the keys to Babylon, the keys to the city are just handed back to him. Unbelievable. My counselors and my Lord sought me. He already has the respect of those following him. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, maybe one of my favorite lines in Daniel. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are what? Do you understand who's saying that? He was a beast for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar sits back and says, his ways are just. What happened to me was right. Do you understand that perspective of God's sovereignty that can go from being like a, a wolf man to say, I deserve that. I deserve that. Now look, this last phrase of Daniel chapter 4. And those who walk in pride, he is able to what? This is the last words of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now I have a couple questions for you. As I sit back from this text and I look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, I'm trying to understand how he got here. How do you get to the place where you're able to say, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble? Let's remember for a, a moment, shall we? First, he exiles the Jews. He says, uh, everyone eat this. He's got some people that rebel against him. Turns out, those same people who rebel, their bodies, they look better. They become wiser. So it's pretty much like spitting in the face of Nebuchadnezzar. Then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. His wise men can't interpret it. But who can? Guess what? A man of God in Daniel. He interprets the dream. The dream will eventually come to fruition. Chapter 3, do you remember what happens? He, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. He ends up throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. And he watches these humans put in a fiery furnace. And not a single hair on their head is singed. He sees all that. And we see this wrestling in Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe God, maybe not God. Maybe God's sovereign. And here... All of a sudden, he says, the God of the Most High, the God who is holy and righteous, anyone who walks in pride, he can humble him. So I sit back and say, what if I can learn that lesson now? You see? Like he goes through 30, 40 years worth of utter mayhem, murderous things he did. And at the end of it all, he says, Anyone who walks in pride, God can humble you. What if I could learn that lesson now? What if you could learn that lesson now? I ask that, but I ask a, a follow-up question, which is big before we uh, close up here. Would you want to learn that? 
If you could, would you want to? Do you, do you understand the implications? If you could learn the lesson that God can humble those who walk in pride, would you want to learn that? Or would you be fearful of that ultimately? Or ultimately, are you enjoying the comparison between you and others that builds you up? And I often talk about the flip side of pride. Pride just isn't building up. It's also depression. Pride works both ways. It's not just in your comparison, you begin to think you're awesome. It also works on the other side. In in your comparison, you think that you're worth nothing, which causes you to focus more on you. Pride works both ways in the comparison. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with God's sovereignty and this opportunity to learn this lesson now? Can I share a scripture with you in Isaiah 2? Put this Isaiah passage up. This is talking about the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. Do you get the picture? Nebuchadnezzar looking over Babylon. You looking over all of your accomplishments, all your successes, all the things you've done. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. It's a promise. Everyone will eventually be humbled. The scripture says there will be one day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted. No one else. The Lord alone. If we could learn that tonight, right now, would you want to? Would you desire humility so much so that just in our simple comparison with God, that there would be no other answer than to fall humbly before him? I want you guys to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Once you get to the page number of one of our um, Bibles, could you shout it out for me? What's the page number of our pew? 721? Is that what you said? Okay, 721. So I asked myself, would I want to learn that lesson now? What took Nebuchadnezzar 30, 40, 50 years of turmoil and trial would I want to learn it now? And I kept coming back to the story that Jesus taught and the opportunity for you and I to learn it now. Look at this in Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A very pertinent question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus himself exalting the Father, verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20, look at this. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. The same compassion that Daniel has except tenfold because he's Christ, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then Jesus says what? Come, follow me. If you could learn what Nebuchadnezzar says, and you had the opportunity 
to learn it right now? Would you want to? It's staring us in the eye. The words of Jesus in humility, you must look at my sovereignty, my plan, my purpose, and you must completely relinquish control. This isn't about me, this is about you, your glory, your namesake, your gospel is good enough sufficient enough. Your grace is blessed enough. The cross, the blood dripped down from it is completely sufficient for my sins. In that opportunity to look at his sovereignty, you have to answer, rebel or be humbled. Is he good? Is he gracious? Does he have a plan? And you will see the difference in this. Trial comes up and it's so easy like Nebuchadnezzar you lose your job, right? Four or five months later, you get a new job. It's so easy, isn't it, to look back and say, man, God humbled me through that. That was really intense, but much more difficult in it. And that's the whole point. If you can learn humility now, then you lose your job, and you compare yourself to the greatness of God And you're instantly made low, made humble. And as Jesus says, let it all go. You can't hold on to anything because your kingdom is so fragile that I can make it low at any point. And there will be one day where I'll make it all low and I will exalt my name higher than any other so that there will be no questions of who is God. So why not do it now? Why not look at your stuff and your successes and your kids and all the things that you think you've worked so hard for, that you think you deserve, that you think you earn? Why not right now look at the mirror in the comparison of a great, holy, righteous God and say, I will never compare? And in that moment, unlike the rich young man who went away sorrowful, You fall on your face and you say, only you, God. You will bring low those who walk in pride. And now I desire to be brought low just by your goodness, not because of my pride. Why not now? Why will we have to wait till tragedy or till all is gone? You and I tonight can just say, God, in your sovereignty, I just want to release everything that I might know that you are God. I have an amazing promise for each of you. The blessing of the cross is this opportunity that Nebuchadnezzar was given by Daniel to repent. The cross allows you to do that. The cross tonight allows you to look at all of your silly successes and the things that you think are so incredible and to realize they're nothing in comparison to a great God. The broken body of Jesus on a cross gives you the opportunity tonight to say, you know what, I want to turn from all that and I want to rest completely in who God is and his character and his, and his faithfulness. And so Jesus, in the dinner with his friends, he broke the bread and he said, this represents my body broken for you that upon the cross of myself, that you can have forgiveness of sins. He says, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he holds up the cup in some of the most beautiful words of the Gospels. He says, this blood represents the new covenant, the new promise 
you, like the rich young man, will have the opportunity. Give everything you got away and come follow me. You don't need anything else. All you need is the blood of my sacrifice, the empowerment of the Spirit, and following me until I take you away from this earth to spend an eternity with me. Do you get that picture? That's the power of the blood. The power of the blood is you can all let it go. There is no need for you to grip a hold of a crumbling self-kingdom. It will go. And so why not start now? Comparison to a great God, we're nothing, amen? And so tonight, church, we have a great opportunity to respond. All the Lot family leaders are going to be up here serving communion to you. This is a meal for believers in Christ. We take the meal by intention. We pull off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Once your heart has been made low in humility, your walk up to receive communion tonight is representation of your desire to release everything and follow Christ. Let's pray together. God, I want to learn the lesson now. I desire that my friends would learn the lesson now. That you would, in these moments, humble our hearts in the picture of your majesty and your greatness. And that you would do a work in us that can only be explained by your power. And will you help show us that our dreams and successes and all the things that we think we're building here, they will be brought low. But you will be exalted forever. So God, as we respond, stir our hearts in humility. Receive us as we fall on our face. And break us in confession of our sin. Let's stand together and light the lot family leaders up and whenever your heart's ready, respond.